Chapter Twenty Five of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Twenty Five. Her chief dismay was her inability to get rid of the lie she had begun. She found it always ahead of her and about her with new demands, always behind her with new reminders. She stole out of the drug store with the prescription unfilled and, hastening down the street, asked a young Indian girl who came along to finish her errand for her. She waited in the shelter of a fat palm tree, ready to take flight if the Yuma man should come out and follow her. But he was evidently still telling the weary druggist his unsolicited experiences, for, after a time, the Indian girl returned, bringing the medicine and explaining that her delay was due to the much palaver of a man who would not stop talking. On the way back to the Dak cottage, Mem thought fast. She had hidden herself in a tiny hamlet, the nearest thing to solitude. She had hidden herself in vain. The only other hope was to seek concealment in a crowd, as Tom Holby had suggested. And now coercion was added to the allurements of Los Angeles. She told Mrs. Dack and Mrs. Reddick that she had received a call to go to Los Angeles at once. Mrs. Reddick protested and pleaded with all the hospitality that is bestowed on a good servant, where servants of any sort are hard to get and keep. Mrs. Dack could only regret her departure, and her meek desolation of mien almost overcame Mem's resolution. The boy Terry was out of danger, but his arms around Mem's neck were withies she could hardly break. The soft hands, the dewy cheeks, the lonely eyes of the child were fetters cruelly tyrannous. The next morning Mem lugged her old suitcase to the starting point of the auto stage. It carried her and a few other passengers across a badlands, pallid as a convict's cheek and with the same unshaven look. At Whitewater she caught a train that sped her gradually into the vales of plenty, through leagues of citrus groves in flower and in fruit at once seeing orange blossoms abloom in leagues she blushed to think that she had never worn them she marveled at the alleys of green polka dotted with golden oranges with lemons and grapefruit hanging like gifts in tinseled christmas trees long reaches of walnut groves went by in wheel spokes the walnuts made the neatest and shapeliest of orchards there were olives, almonds, roses blowing in red miles along the country roads. She was coming up into Eden. And eventually she reached the new Babel, which her father had denounced as the last capital of paganism. No city could be so wicked as her father and she had thought Los Angeles and be anything else. And Los Angeles was everything else. Scanty as her resources were, Mem had to pay a taxicab to take her to leave his home. It was the first taxicab she had ever ridden in, and she was hysterical with fear as it shot and spun through streets so thick with traffic and so wild that this city's record of accidents had achieved supremacy in the world. The driver mauled his gear so recklessly that the cab was incessantly snarling and spitting a very beast of prey. Yet Mem was almost more afraid of the taximeter as she watched it adding dimes to her fare at a spendthrift rate. She was likely to be destroyed by bankruptcy, if not by collision. The street slid through a long, long tunnel and then swooped up and away to Sunset Boulevard. She loved the name. 
then gradually into a domain of tiny houses with large gardens, each of a luxuriance that struck Mem as almost fantastic. All of these people must be grand viziers, the way they surrounded themselves with tropical splendors. The Spanish names of many of the streets made literature to her eye, and she was dazed by the number of them. She thought that Los Angeles must have extended its limits almost to San Francisco. San Franciscans often made the same accusation. Suddenly the car swerved to the right and scooted up a little avenue of low houses, not white only, but pink or mauve or yellow, with roofs of varicolored tile and awnings of gaudy stripe. In a city so widespread, and made up of so many small houses so far apart, that when the man was at his work, and the wife in the kitchen or shopping, there was nobody visible. She had the impression of Los Angeles that Arthur Summers Roche expressed. A million white houses, and not a soul going in or coming out of one of them. The cab jolted to a stop before a tiny palace of four or five rooms. Mem got down, paid the pirate her ransom, and toted her suitcase up to the quaint little door. This was Leva's home. She had a palm tree, a pepper tree, a few truculent cactuses, grass, and a fountain. Along the walk stood a row of palms, their trunks studded or lapped in many facets where leaf stalks had been cut off. A gorgeous vine of bougainvillea was flung up over the cornice with the effect of a vast carnival shawl. Leva was not at home. A servant who opened the door said that she would not get back from the studio before six or half-past. Mem asked permission to wait, knowing nowhere else to turn. She studied the bright rooms as if they were chambers in fairyland. She could hardly comprehend the patio and the walls of concrete. She did not realize that she could almost have poked her thumb through them. The garden built into the house, the frail and many-tinted furniture, the photographs of famous paintings that she had never heard of. The whole spirit of the place was foreign to Mem. It looked genie-built. The servant was glad to relieve her loneliness with chatter. She explained that Miss Lemaire lived there with three other ladies, all of them in the movies, and none of them getting their pictures took. They lived here with no more thought of chaperonage than a crowd of bachelors. Mem's greatest shock was the abrupt arrival in a world where the enjoyment of life was made its chief business. She had been brought up to believe in duty first, in self-denial, abstention, modesty, demurity, simplicity, meekness, prayer, remorse. Here, people worship the sun, flowers, dancing, speed, hilarity, laughter, and love. They worked hard, but at the manufacture of pretty things, of stories, pictures, paintings, music. To her, there was an inconceivable recklessness of consequence. They thought no more of respectable appearance than South Sea Islanders. Yet they seemed to be as happy as they tried to be. They had their disappointments, jealousies, scandals, gossips, griefs, and shames, but so had the gray village people she had left. These utopians had no winter in their climate or in their souls, only a little rainy season, a bit of chill. When Leva and her friends came in at dinner time, they came like young businessmen, home from offices, tired of shop, yet full of its talk, eager for amusement, knowing no law except their own self-respect for health or reputation or efficiency. The first one in set a Victrola to playing a jazz tune before she noticed Mem. 
The second one in joined the first in a dance. They quarreled over a new step with laughing violence. Mem was aghast at their contempt for conventions. They despised the Puritans who abhorred them. They snapped their fingers at appearances and regarded caution not as an evidence of decency, but as a proof of hypocrisy. They had in their time known all of Mem's compunctions, but had abandoned them one by one as a soldier throws off all baggage that hampers the freedom and range of his march. As a swimmer in strong currents casts away everything that weighs, including clothes. She would learn that many of those who loved to break the rules of outward propriety were solid as white marble in their standards. She had already learned at home that many of the most spotless exteriors are only whited sepulchres. She would conform herself with trepidation at first, and with much backsliding into respectability as she understood it. But she would soon embrace the new paganism with desperation and finally with gaiety, adapting herself like a beachcomber to the customs of a tribe of self-supporting women who compromised themselves so freely that the critic gave them up as hopeless. One does not fret much over the unconventionalities of gypsies. At first she supposed that all Los Angeles was Hollywood, but she would learn that to a large portion of the city's population the word Hollywood was a synonym for riotous outlawry, a plague spot, a kind of spendthrift slums, and in Hollywood itself she would find a large, old-fashioned village element dazed by its gypsies. Furthermore, the city, which her father had damned with such wholesale horror, was nine-tenths composed of Midwesterners like himself, people who had brought their churches and churchliness with them. There were hundreds of thousands of Iowans, Missourians, Kansans there, and they held picnics constantly, enormous reunions which differed from the camp meetings and barbecues of the Midwest only in the fact that the groves were not of maple and oak and hickory, but of eucalyptus and palm and pepper. Whether Mem had come to her ruination or her redemption, she had come to a new world, before she learned how freely, with what masculine franchise, these women conducted their lives, before she could recoil from such perilous associations, she was entrapped in their cordiality, their vivacity, their lavish kindness. Leva, the third one home, welcomed Mem as if she were a returned prodigal sister instead of a passing acquaintance met in the desert. She would listen to nothing but the unpacking of the suitcase and the acceptance of a little bed covered with a gaudy Navajo blanket. There were flowers at Mem's plate in a lavish heap, and a big basket of fruit was set in her room. Californians are prompt and frequent with gifts of flowers. The other women came in variously. One walked. One drove her own car up into a garage just a little bigger than the car. One was set down by a big studio touring car, that delivered its passengers of nights and gathered them up again of mornings. For Los Angeles is a city of maleficent distances. Every place is a Sabbath day's journey from every place else. And there is no Sabbath, at least no legal Sabbath. Yet the people seem to be extraordinarily good and kindly. They seem to get the sun into their lives. Their hearts felt as big and golden and juicy as their own oranges. Even the lemons had a sweeter acridity than at home. At home, California fruit had been a byword for bigness, high color, and insipidity of taste, something a little better than dead sea fruit. 
the smaller plainer native apples pears and peaches had possessed a better flavor but california fruit had reached calverly after a long dark journey and it was eaten in a foreign air out here however where the oranges could be lifted warm from the tree the figs sliced fresh for breakfast the peaches stripped of their downy silk while their wine was new there was no lapse from the joyous promise of their advertisement if the sunlight was of a gold refined and somehow enriched the shadow was also of a deeper cool just inside its edge the sun was walled out the first builders had not known this they had set above their houses the roofs of wintry climates and one might still see in older los angeles obsolete homes whose slanting shingles were excellently arranged to let the snow slide off since there was no snow to slide they served as furnaces for the hot sun next came the low roof with the wide flat eaves casting a heavy shade about the windows but this made the houses chilly and the new school brought the tiles just to the brim of the walls and these walls were not often glaring white as before but brown dove gray salmon shrimp olive where the shadows lay along the lawns or the walks they were of unusual design not dapplings of rounded leaves as in the midwest but the long scissored slashes of palm fronds the thready reeds of papyrus the pepper's delicate flounces even in this eden however there was distress anxiety the hard times that were freezing the outer world were threatening the raging prosperity of los angeles studios were closing overnight supposed millionaires were departing abruptly in search of funds to meet their payrolls stars who had been collecting ten thousand dollars a week or less were left stranded in the midst of unfinished pictures and unfinished mortgages and jewelry bills the lesser fry were being cast ashore in heaps like minnows after a tidal wave's recession the girls at leva's were wondering how long their jobs would last a mere cut in salary would be a welcome mercy a respite from a death sentence this was devastating news to mem for she had landed on this tropical isle in the expectation of at least a breadfruit tree her blanched face told her story to leva who held out more hope than she inly entertained never say die mrs woodville she said there's always a chance the companies are turning off their oldest most experienced people in droves but every now and then they take in a newcomer i'll speak to the laboratory chief anyway your board and lodging won't cost you anything as long as we've got either here eh girls the girls agreed their adventurous spirit included a reckless hospitality and they put off care till tomorrow in the hope that it would never come after the dinner the victrola was set whirring again and mem was invited to forget her troubles in a fox trot she gasped at this she had never learned even a lamb trot her father's church did not permit dancing and while it overlooked the sin in certain of its parishioners there would have been scandal indeed if the parson's daughter had ever lifted her foot in aught save solemnity but mem was not allowed to explain she was dragged from her chair and forced to copy the steps set before her it would have been impossibly priggish and insulting for her to plead religious scruples and she put her best foot foremost the dance mood was innate and she had a natural grace of rhythm that had languished unheeded the steps were simple and their combination at the whim of the dancer who led mem was soon whirling about the room with more or less awkwardness which only made for laughter and with a swimming intoxication that left her panting and dizzy but strangely foolishly happy she had learned a new alphabet of expression 
She misspelled the words and jumbled the syntax, but she was getting along somehow on a new planet. When three or four men drove up in a car and invaded the house with invitations to a dance at the Hollywood Hotel, Mem declined, of course. Her refusal was ignored, as of no importance. It's Thursday night, said Leva, and it's our religious duty to show up at the Hollywood. Everybody's there. You might meet somebody who'd give you a job. Mem begged to be excused. She could not dance, and she was very tired. That's when you're at your best, cried Leva, who was an entirely other woman from the shrouded Arabian that Mem had met at Palm Springs. While Mem protested, Leva motioned one of the men, a young actor, to make her dance. In spite of her struggles, she was snatched from her chair into the arms of this fawn, whose manly beauty was his stock in trade. It was the first time any man, except her father and her brothers, had embraced Mem since Elwood Farnaby had thrilled her with his love. She did not count the brief duel with Tom Holby in Palm Canyon, since he had made no effort to overwhelm her resistance. But this laughing satyr, Mr. Creighton, held her tight and compelled her to dance. Giddy with the whirl and sullen with the outrage, Mem's anger blazed into open disgust. Creighton said he was horribly sorry and only meant it in fun, and by his abject contrition made Mem ashamed of herself. She did not know what to do or say. This was her first experience of the confusion that comes from being too respectable on a holiday. To escape from the scene of her killjoy boorishness, as it looked to her now, she went out into the moonlit patio. The moon seemed to make life simpler. It has a way of blotting the material details with dumb shadow and spreading a love light over dreamy surfaces. From a house somewhere near and drowned in foliage came a music of guitar and ukulele and young voices. An automobile went by, trailing laughter in a glittering scarf. Over her head a palm tree waved an aromatic fan as over a daughter of Pharaoh. Along the northern sky the mountains were aligned, built of some soft-tinted cloudiness, as if they were a wall decreed between this Xanadu of all delights and the harsh, respectable realms of the east, a barrier between the woeful lands of shagbark and mock orange and this garden of almond trees and roses. In a radiance so amorous that it seemed almost to coo, Mem felt that the great needs of her soul were love, tenderness, rapture. This yearning was divine in this light. In the bright lexicon of the moon, there was no such word as don't, everything wooed everything in mem's downcast eyes her bosom was silvered with the glamour and gathered into the same thought that mused upon wall and flower and tree upon the deeps of the sky and upon the nearest vine leaf a quake with the ecstasy of being alive at night the air was imbued with a luscious fragrance that delighted her nostrils and drew her eyes to an orange tree almost a perfect globe in symmetry and curiously forming a little universe whose support was lost in the gloom beneath. In the round night of its own sky hung moons exhaling perfume and temptation. Like another Eve, she yielded to the cosmic urge and put her hand forth to the tree of knowledge, plucked the fruit that was not hers, and made it hers. She did not peel the cloth of gold and divide the pulp, but as she has seen these Californians do, buried her teeth in the ready flesh, tore out a hole, and drained the syrup. She was too well schooled in biblical lore not to think of Eve. There was, however, no Adam for her to involve in her fall, so she took the whole fruit for herself. But then, instead of feeling shame, 
as the scales fell from her eyes shame itself fell from her and she laughed eve had become lilith for the moment she felt in her heart that there was something wrong here in this new life but then there had been so much wrong in the life she had led before this was a city of peril but she had not escaped peril at home she breathed deep of the new freedom she cast off her past resolved to bend her head and her back no longer under remorse but to stand erect to run and dance and to be beautiful and rich and famous like eve she felt that the first necessity of her new era was clothes if she had had any she would have called a taxicab and dashed away to the hollywood hotel she felt that she could dance with anybody or with nobody she could be salome and dance herself into half a kingdom dance everybody's head off including her own but it has been so arranged that whenever a woman is set on fire with a high resolution to do some glorious thing an elbow demon always brings her back to the dust by whispering you have nothing fit to wear otherwise the conquest of the world would not have been left to blundering hesitant males mem went into the house the moon was all very well for beautiful moods but it was impracticable it did not provide the wardrobe for the deeds it inspired she went into the house like a prisoner granted a little exercise in a walled yard then driven back to her cell she was awake in her perplexities when leva and her friends came home the young men raided the ice-box then went their way leva was so drowsy that she could hardly get her hair down but she sat on the edge of mem's bed and discussed the future leva advised new duds by all means and offered to have them charged to her own account until mem could find a job and begin to pay it was harrowing to mem to think that she must take on a burden of large debt before she could hope for small wages but the need was imperative the next morning mem acquired on tick the brief trousseau of a little business bride then she went to the studio with leva and was assigned without delay to the laboratory projection room at twenty-five dollars a week a hundred pretty actresses got no jobs at all for they were seeking glory and wealth the size of the studio astounded mem it was a vast factory this company's assets were thirteen million dollars its last year's gross income eight millions in a score of years a toy unknown before had become the fifth largest industry in the world a mammoth target for every sort of critic and now mem had entered the machine shop if not the art end of chapter twenty five recording by deanna beauvais